Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Do you know a student getting ready to go to college? Or are you looking at going back to school yourself? The Woodward Hines Education Foundation and the Get to College program help more Mississippians get to and through college to get certificates and degrees that lead to meaningful employment. They offer free college planning advice, including hands-on FAFSA completion assistance through in-person or virtual appointments. Visit gettocollege.org to learn more. This is Good Morning, Rather. It's 8.30 on Thursday, February 23rd. I'm Desiree Frazier, and this is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, doctors and medical leaders push House leadership to allow a vote on legislation to extend postpartum Medicaid benefits. Then a nonpartisan publication adjusts its rating for this fall's governor's race, plus decoding the historical context for a national divorce. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Doctors across Mississippi are calling on the state's House of Representatives to take up a bill to extend postpartum Medicaid benefits from eight weeks to 12 months. A coalition of medical professionals took to the Capitol yesterday to once again voice support for an extension of the federal benefit. The Senate passed similar legislation last year, but it never got to a vote in the House. Dr. Anita Henderson is a pediatrician at the Hattiesburg Clinic and a member of the Mississippi State Medical Association. She spoke with our Kobe Vance. Every major medical organization supports this. Every state in the union, say Mississippi and Wyoming, have some form of Medicaid for moms after delivery. And we are asking Speaker Gunn to allow this to be brought up for a vote in the House. It passed with bipartisan support in the Senate. We have bipartisan support in the House. We have talked to our representatives and know um, that there are Republicans, Democrats, women and men in our leadership positions who support 12-month postpartum care. So we're simply asking for that to be brought for a vote. Last year, the bill did make it to the House, but it was never taken up. What do you think could change this year? A lot of things have happened in the last year. Um, The Dobbs decision came down, so we know that we are going to have thousands more babies in Mississippi. Our maternal mortality report came out showing a rise in maternal mortality in Mississippi. Black women are four times more likely to die than white women. Um, Our infant mortality and preterm birth rates in Mississippi have gone up. Um, And so there are so many things that have happened, and data is out now, and particularly from the Medicaid division in Texas, that showed that during the public health emergency, when moms were allowed 12-month postpartum care, they had more visits for contraceptive care and fewer visits for pregnancy care. So that indicates they had extended time between pregnancies, they had more mental health visits, 
um, so they were able to get healthier before that next um, baby was born. So there is data out there. We presented that to the speaker and to the governor. Um, every state is doing it except for us. And so we're just asking that Mrs. B moms, um, that we ensure that maternal health matters and that we prioritize preventing prematurity. Yesterday, the House did bring up a measure that would have amended a bill, but House leadership uh, shot down any shot down attempts to debate that on the floor. Do you think that paints a dark sign for what's to come with this Senate bill? We're hopeful that because uh, Senate Bill 2212 has bipartisan support, because pediatricians and OBs and family doctors have spoken with their representatives, and we know it has bipartisan support, we're asking Mississippi moms, grandmoms, grandfathers, aunts and uncles to call the speaker's office, to call the governor's office, to call their representatives to ask for this bill to be voted on. The vast majority of Mississippians want 12 months postpartum care for their moms. And so it is an economic argument. It is a health care argument. It's a political argument. But it ultimately is for the benefit of our kids. Earlier this week, Democratic members of the House tried to amend a tax credit bill to include a provision that would require an extension of postpartum benefits. Minority Leader Robert Johnson of Natchez says the debate was cut short and the amendment wasn't voted on. It's not an interest or, or not a willingness to have a discussion, I mean, let alone pass the bill, but they don't even want to talk about the bill. And that is because they know that the majority of the public in this state know that we need to do this, and they're afraid of the transparency of letting people know that they are voting against women and children. So they don't want to have a discussion. Now the only vehicle is the Senate bill that's going forward into the House. I wanted to get your thoughts on, do you think this, the House is going to be in a position to take that up at all? I know last year the bill was never brought up. Uh, well, I would hope that this year they would at least let the bill get through the committee, let, the, let them have a discussion about it. But I don't have any faith that that's going to happen because they know that if the bill reached the floor, it would pass. Uh, so, But I can tell you this. With, with the interest and the pressure that's from people like these doctors, and I'm so glad they're here today, I hope we have some pressure from uh, more institutions like hospitals. But the public needs to know, call your legislator and tell him and tell her, tell them that you support health care for women and babies, that we have the highest infant mortality rate in the country, and that more babies die uh, who, are pre, uh, who are premature die after that 60 days than, than any other babies that are born, we need to do something to protect these women and children. If you care about life, then prove it by extending postpartum care. As Robert Johnson just said, Mississippi does have the highest rate of infant mortality and premature births in the nation. Coming up, a nonpartisan publication adjusts its rating for this fall's governor's race. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Do you drive a vehicle? Then you'll find AutoCorrect helpful, especially on Coach Charlie's Tip of the Week. Listen to our podcast with me, Coach Charlie Melton, on any podcasting platform or on the MPB Public Media app. This podcast is a local production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting and depends on the support of listeners like you. If you can, please donate today at mpbonline.org. And thanks. Thanks. 
This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Desiree Frazier. A publication that rates political races is saying Mississippi's governor's race could be tighter than Republican incumbent Tate Reeves might have expected. The Cook Political Report moved the race slightly left in its prediction meter over the weekend, from solid Republican to likely Republican. Jessica Taylor is their Senate and governor's editor. She tells our Lacey Alexander the shift doesn't necessarily mean the race is competitive yet, but that it could be. Democrats did get, I think, a stronger than expected recruit. And, you know, we put this race initially in um, our solid Republican category, um, which is not a surprise for a state like Mississippi. But when we moved it to likely, I think it indicated a few things, information that we didn't have, developments that happened when we put out our initial ratings. So we felt it merited a change to likely. So that was Presley getting in. Um, you know, and, you know, being sort of the type of Democrat that could potentially be competitive. And then also, you know, the, some of the issues that Reeves is um, is facing that Democrats are clearly going to make an issue, the, you know, welfare scandal and Jackson water system. Um, and then, you know, the polling that came out, too, was, was another thing. That's something else we factor in, though, I think, you know, early on polling um it, it is, is a bit tricky, and I'm, you know, highly skeptical of the one poll that came out that was done by a Democratic pollster as well, um, and, and a and a more liberal group that put uh, Presley ahead of Reeves. I don't think that's the case, but you know, the Siena College poll that came out that you know had, you know, 57% of voters saying they would be open to supporting someone else's governor. Now that doesn't always mean that they will, um, but. Uh, that just showed some weaknesses on Reeves's part. I mean, he has the money advantage right now. And so, you know, all things considered right now, he, he's the clear favorite for reelection. But I think this has there are elements there that could make this a more competitive race. And so that's why we shifted our rating from solid to likely. Um, can yeah. you elaborate on what about Presley makes him look like a decent competitor towards Reeves? Yeah, I thought he had a very strong introduction video. Um, you know, he's uh, he, he's won in Mississippi before. Now, he hasn't won statewide, and that's something I think he clearly still would have to prove. Um, you know, and I mean, I think one of the cautions I take when looking at this race is that, you know, 2019 was a, a little bit of a different scenario because it was an open seat race, but you had someone like Jim Hood that was someone who had won statewide before. Now, one of the barriers taken off for Democrats this time around is that, you know, sort of the antiquated system where you had to win a majority of the state legislative districts, that, that's no longer an issue, but, um, you know, that ended up not coming into play um, in the 2019 race regardless. Um, so, you know, I, I think open seat races are always easier than challenging sitting governors. And it's, not easy to beat an incumbent governor by any means. And a- another thing is that the, the races that happened this cycle are, or, or this year are, um, you know, three southern states, Kentucky, Louisiana, and Mississippi. I mean, c- nothing's going to knock Kentucky off of National Democrats' top priority defending Andy Bashir there. Um, and so really, I think the question is, 
is Mississippi moving up to their second best option? And I think that's a real possibility because you look at Louisiana, which, yes, has a Democratic governor right now. Um, and and I think, you know, in 2019, I think Democrats top priority was reelecting John Bell Edwards in Louisiana and probably Kentucky, given Matt Bevin's vulnerabilities, was second. And I think Mississippi fell to third. Does Mississippi become more competitive? You know, sources I've talked to think that actually Mississippi might be a better opportunity than uh, than Louisiana, um, even though they hold that race right now. Again, if John Bell Edwards could run again, I think that's a different scenario. But with Presley, you do have someone. I mean, I think he has, you know, he has some conservative positions on things that I think, you know, are, are non-starters with a lot of Mississippi Republicans, like gun issues, abortion, and different things like that. Um, but, you know, he, I think, you know, his opening video was very strong talking about his upbringing. I mean, certainly it's an interesting tidbit that, you know, he was a cousin of Elvis Presley in a state like Mississippi. Um, but, you know, he, he seemed to try to speak to, I think, you know, I mean, Mississippi is obviously a state that deals with a lot of really extreme poverty and he seems to understand that and that's something that it seems like he will make you know a clear message and then you have the issues going on with welfare you have questions about um, medicaid expansion in the state as well and so are those ones that could could rise up among voters concerns and um you know, a lot of this is, you know, left over from the, you know, Bryan administration and things, too. And that's certainly what Governor Reeves will argue. But there, there's enough issues there that um, that I think could complicate this for, for Reeves, given some of those issues going on, mainly the welfare scandal. Uh, when you and your team look at that polling info for your own reports, do you always take that data with a grain of salt or is it more of a case by case basis on how much you invest into that information? I mean, I think all polls are not created equal in our minds. Um, you know, something like this that, you know, Siena College has, a, I think, you know, a pretty good record. But, you know, again, it's the time that it's done, we're going to look at polling as the cycle goes on. And, you know, polls are really sort of a snapshot in time. We would have to see and Democrats would have to show, I think, move, more movement by Presley than, again, apart from that one poll. Um, because, I mean, Reeves has a massive financial advantage at this point. So Presley is going to have to need a lot of money in this race. And again, it, and convince national Democrats, I think, to invest in it, which could be, again, difficult when their top priority is, you know, reelecting a Democrat in Kentucky as well, which isn't, is clearly not an easy state either. And he's got to grow his name ID as well. Again, you know, having the last name Presley in Mississippi probably helps you, but like you've still got to know who he is apart from that. And I mean, you just start at a disadvantage if there's a D beside of your name, no matter even if you are a conservative Democrat in Mississippi. So, I mean, he still has a lot to overcome. Jessica Taylor, Senate and Governor's Editor of the Cook Political Report. Thank you again for chatting with us. Sure thing. Coming up, decoding the historical context for a national divorce. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. When you look at your vehicle, think of MPB. Need to get rid of your ride? Donate it by calling 877-MPB-4-CAR. Need to have some work done on your truck? Listen to AutoCorrect Thursdays at 10, Saturdays at 11, An MPB license plate reminds you that MPB is with you wherever you go. 
Go to your county office and ask for an MPB car tag. MPB and cars, better together. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Desiree Frazier. A national divorce. That's what a congresswoman from Georgia has been advocating this week. Republican Marjorie Taylor Greene first took to social media, then late-night cable news, to explain and justify her call for a split between red states and blue states. MPB News reached out to Mississippi's Republican House delegation multiple times for comment, but none have responded. Where does this language come from, and how can the nation's divisive history inform its present? Well, our Michael Guidry asks Christine Ortel, professor of history at the University of Tulsa. Probably the first iterations of the same kind of language relates back to the nullification context of um, that really hit a peak in the 1830s where the state of South Carolina was not happy with certain tariffs and thought, well, maybe we can just nullify um, federal laws that we don't like. And uh, the result didn't end well for South Carolina in that case. And, um, you know, President Andrew Jackson, even though he was a Democrat and even though he was pro-local government and local control, he he nullified the nullifiers. <laughs> he said, sorry, you can't just pick and choose which federal laws you want to follow if you're part of the United States. And so now that language like that it, it has resurfaced this week, uh, as someone who has uh, who studies 19th century American history specifically, are there parallels to be drawn? And if so, what are they to that kind of rhetoric? Well, absolutely. <clears throat> we look to first the nullification crises in the 1830s, but then also the secession language that emerges. And we often associate secession just with 1860 and 1861 when the southern states actually formally seceded, but language of secession populates various congressional debates, uh, popular media, newspaper articles uh, throughout the 1850s. Uh, There were certain Southern fire eaters, they were referred to, who were um, viewed as secessionists very early on and threatened leaving the Union if certain anti-slavery policies were passed in Congress. Um, So there was this type of threatening language about uh, rejecting federal law and leaving the Union and forming one's own uh, independent nation throughout, um, even starting as early as the 1840s, but it really heated up in the 1850s and, of course, culminates with South Carolina's secession, excuse me, after Lincoln's election. Uh, and here from Mississippi, we're familiar with uh, most familiar with the Mississippi Declaration of Secession, uh, and and in it, not only do the drafters of that that declaration uh, list out uh, the explicit reasons for seceding, but also bringing into the conversation and, and evoking the role of abolition and abolitionists and how they you know incorporated the media and the schools and the same place that this call for national divorce is coming from is the same place that that is pushing back on 
uh, a lot of progressive ideology. Back then, abolition was a progressive ideology. Uh, any parallels to draw there with all of this rhetoric? Absolutely. And you can see, as you note, in the secession declarations, not only in Mississippi, but also South Carolina and other states where they specifically uh, call out abolitionism as a reason for secession. And many fire eaters, secessionists referred to Lincoln as an abolitionist president. They marked Republicans. They called them the black Republicans. And abolitionism was not the only thing they were worried about. They um, often complained about all the isms. So vegetarianism actually has its roots in the 1840s and 50s with there's also suffragism and um, the the suffrage movement that really kind of the first wave of feminism. Um, We don't have the word feminism yet in the common lexicon in the 1850s and 60s. So lots of these, uh, as you said, progressive ideologies of the 1850s were lumped together in the same ways that CRT and LGBTQ and all the various progressive movements and activist movements of um, the 21st century are lumped together. And so it wasn't, obviously abolitionism was the most potent symbol that the South was rebelling against, but it was lumped together with a whole host of other ideologies that um, Southerners believed threatened the foundation of their culture and society. A lot of this has to do with the role of the federal government. Uh, and we're seeing, I think, now that, that the animosity towards the size and scope and role of the federal government uh, is is fueling a lot of this this rhetoric against uh, for, for a national divorce. What was it like then, and how can that inform what any future conversation of a quote-unquote national divorce will look like today? Yeah, so there are, again, a lot of parallels. But the thing about critics of big government or strong nas- a strong national government is that they often don't like national oversight for causes that they don't support, right? But in the 1850s, for example... So they're talking about the primacy of local government and the importance of local control. But then they pass the Fugitive Slave Law, and they want the federal government to use its power to capture and return enslaved property, enslaved laborers who've run away from their plantations. So I think you can kind of see, like, a lot of conservatives, Marjorie Taylor Greene in particular, you know, they have no problem with the federal government enforcing anti-abortion laws, but they're not okay when the government's involved in other aspects that that they believe threaten their values. What do you make of, uh, of this? I mean, it's 160 years later. Uh, they say history repeats itself. Uh, what should we, using history as a guide, make of the current climate we're in? Well... We're obviously in an incredibly tense political climate, and it's um, not beneficial for anyone, certainly the health of the American de- democracy. It, it's, not, it's not a positive trend. And yet, 
we're not there yet. We're not at the point of a civil war. If you look at the events that precipitated the civil war and the incredible violence that occurred literally on the House floor, on the Senate floor, you know, the caning of Charles Sumner, there were um, brawls, all-out brawls on the House floor. And yes, we're not being civil, but they're not killing each other and they're not caning each other. And I don't think we're at a level, uh, a point of no return. Here's the problem for people like Green and a national divorce. The thing about slavery is it became a sectional institution after the American Revolution. It was abolished everywhere in the North, and it was not in the South. So there was an easy dividing line. Um, there's no easy dividing line anymore. Every single American family has conservatives and liberals living in the same household sometimes, right? Um, how, how do you do that divorce? What does that look like? So you, you can't divorce. We can't divorce each other. We have, to, we have to get into marriage counseling right now. Professor Kristen Ortel of the University of Tulsa, thank you so much for taking some time to discuss national divorce in this historical context with us. Well, it was my pleasure, Michael. Thanks for having me. That's a description, marriage counseling. This has been Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio.